we are at a pretty good clip for AI already. I think the underlying technology, if you draw, I, I may be proven wrong in the future, but if you draw the analogy to broadband internet, I would bet that we're close to 10 or 20 megabytes in terms of the evolution of the technology, which is pretty decent. Like you can do a lot of stuff with 10 or 20 megabytes. If you use that technology correctly for business applications, uh, there's a lot that can already be done. 77% of companies got in with no revenue and 23% had some revenue essentially. Yeah, YC is very much, I wouldn't say biased, but YC is totally okay with getting people at the very earliest stages of their journey and help with idea validation and understanding like how you can get the first customers and eventually helping with fundraising at the end of the program. I think family is a very important part of it. Travel is a very important part of it. I really enjoy traveling. I was in Colombia for 10 days just last week and it was, it was an excellent experience like exploring a different country. Travel is important, family is important, parents are important, having good friends is important. I think life is so much more than just your career. I think for the next four or five years, it might be like dialed more towards career, just given the age that uh, I'm in right now. But I think there's so much more to be fulfilled. Welcome to Venture Vibes, where we hang out with cool people building cool shit. Today, we have Akash Sharma here with us. He's the CEO and co-founder of Venom, a YC company that is building one-stop shop platform for productionizing large language model apps. Akash, welcome to the shop. Yeah, thanks for having me, Hanson and Seed. Uh, super excited to chat with you guys today. My name is Akash. I, I'm the founder and CEO of Venom, a developer platform to build uh, LLM applications. I have two more co-founders, Noah Flaherty and Sid. The three of us met at uh, Dover, which is a YC Summer 19 company. We worked together for two and a half years. We've built applications on large language models before. And Sid and Noah also have experience working in the traditional MLOps industry. And we're super excited about the possibility of helping other companies build these applications for themselves. So that's what we're doing right now. We wrapped up with Y Combinator earlier this year and uh, raised a $5 million seed. And now we're just off up and running. That's super exciting. Do you also want to tell us a bit more about Venom? Yeah, we are a developer platform to help companies build LLM applications. And uh, when companies are building LLM applications, they face challenges or uh, problems with coming up with the right prompt, finding the right context for their uh, prompts from a vector database or from their corpus of text. Uh, once the prompt is in production, there's challenges with monitoring and versioning the traffic. Uh, uh, people also have often have complex prompt chains where they, there's a multi-step process to come up with the right answer. And we also help with fine-tuning, which is a different technique to basically continuously improve quality, cost, and latency of models. And all this developer platform helps with productivity in building applications. But more than that, we also offer best practices because we've seen so many people take AI and LLMs into production. We work with our customers to use our platform most effectively for their own use case because it's a very horizontal technology and it can be applied in many different ways, but you just need to think through the architecture. Cool. Yeah, we may contact you for a, a, a trial or something because we have some ideas. Cool. Nice to meet you, Akash. I guess my first question to you is, are people just really large LLMs? Uh, very interesting question. What do LLMs do? So LLMs basically predict one token at a time. LLMs are a neural network. Brains are a neural network. What do humans do? Humans also say one word at a time. When we start a sentence, we don't know how we're going to end the sentence. Or when we start a thought, we don't know how we're going to end the thought. So the, the analogies are definitely there. They're very interesting. But humans have goals. Like humans have emotions. 
and we haven't been able to, humans also can effectively cooperate with each other. We haven't been able to see that level of uh, coordinated action that you, humans can create as societies that LMs don't have. LMs are very specific, suited for specific tasks. And it's probably good that way. We don't know what AGI might look like in the future. But today, the world, I, I can say that today, the world is pretty far away from AGI. Like LLMs make very simple mistakes on, for example, they very confidently say that 750 million is larger than 1 billion. And it's like, flabbergasted. like, wow, what just happened? There's a big gap, but there are definitely some similarities predicting one token at a time in particular. I think the challenge, the challenge with answers to the question is we don't really understand people. We don't really have a good definition of what a rational person is. So there's no way to even compare. Quote, unquote, there weird is no behavior. such thing as a rational person, Seed. You should sure. know this. <laughs> That's part of the challenge. So we don't really have, we don't understand what consciousness is. LOM is, is intrinsically really not interpretable. <laughs> so it becomes really challenging to understand, to compare those two unknown identities in most of the times. But yeah. Right. Yeah, I guess one small, maybe last point on this is uh, when we talk to our customers, because we work with customers with all levels of sophistication on using LLM, right? So a lot right. of times that people are just getting started with prompting and they want the LLM to perform a certain action. We just, the way we, tell, uh, the way we guide our customers is, hey, think of this as a, a very smart uh, new college grad who you're giving very clear instructions to on what needs to be done. And the LLM just does that. So the analogy is still like there, right? Because we are telling our customers that treat this LM as your new college undergrad. Right, right. I also have another question for you. As a founder of an AI company, do you feel like AI is overhyped? 90% of YC companies are now, more than that, are AI, right? Part of AI hype. Like, where do we go from here? Do you think it's just a big bubble that most going to pop? Or do you think really this is similar to third evolution, revolution of human intelligence? What's your take on this? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I definitely think that there is too much hype in the space right now, but there's a lot of element of real value that's also created as part of this hype. So let's break that down. How did this all change, right? So AI has been around for many decades. And I think the recent wave was basically kickstarted by the Transformers paper that Google came out with about, like, about half a decade ago. And since then, a ton of research was made, mostly led by OpenAI and Google. And OpenAI, they saw some promising results with GPT-2. And then they decided to basically expand the training process for GPT-3 and train GPT-3 on the whole internet. And when GPT-3 was released in March of 2020, that was a special moment. Like, I remember we were working, this was a beta of GPT-3 in March or May of 2020. That was incredible because that was the first time we were seeing a machine just in our context, a recruiting software company, we saw this, we built applications to write recruiting emails, to write job descriptions, to classify incoming recruiting emails. In parallel, there were companies like Jasper who skyrocketed to a $1.5 billion valuation in 18 months because they were writing sales and marketing copy. So when that moment happened, people saw that this technology can actually create like real business value. And then, so that was a hype for 2020, 2021. And then we went along, nothing much happened. But then end of last year, when ChatGPT came out, that was another big moment in uh, the AI space because ChatGPT was the fastest consumer product to reach 100 million users. They reached there within maybe a month, four to six weeks. And that's really what captured the ima imagination of the whole world. And we've been at that level since uh, the last six to eight months. If you look at earnings calls of public companies, there are uh, so many mentions of AI. So I think at this point where we stand is a lot of people know ChatGPT. People know that AI can have real value and AI does have real value, 
But the main challenge that uh, I'm seeing over and over again is that people don't know how to use it most effectively, both to improve their own productivity and to also solve business processes. Uh, so like actually being able to use this technology without it hallucinating and making sure that it provides good answers consistently is the right. real challenge that companies face. This is a constantly evolving space. But I would be very surprised if uh, we would have an out-of-the-box LLM that just answers, like solves all business processes. So it, the onus is now on software engineers and product managers to decide the right architecture, the right prompting techniques, the right testing methodology to build like real business value using these LLMs. So I think it's uh, going to be a slow burn uh, on using AI at scale, but there's clear value to be had. Yeah. So I think we focused a lot on the more like linear progressions of new generations of transformer-based networks, right? As you mentioned, it really, all of this we're seeing today, most of generative AI we're seeing today, all the LLMs we're seeing today are based on that one paper, right? Attention's all you need. That's the foundation. There's variations on that. There's more data, more compute thrown at the problem. What would really bring about the next breakthrough? And if it doesn't happen, would AI still have a reasonably important place in the world? For example, when you think about the semiconductor, or the internet revolutions, it wasn't really just one new technology, right? Semiconductors, we went through generations and generations of different fab technologies. We were able to keep Moore's law, which is an insane law, alive for decades, exponential growth and compute. Uh, in the case of the internet, the bandwidth and the latency of the internet improved so much and wireless improved so much, the ubiquity improved so much. I just, I feel like a big part of that is whether you think, and I don't know if you follow the academic space of this a lot, whether you think the same thing will happen with AI. Maybe like drawing back to your analogy of, of say broadband internet, right? It started with these DSL lines with our phones. We had 256 kilobyte connections. Then we got into like cable lines through our TV. We probably got four or five megabyte connections. So at every step, our productivity improved as, as a society. And when we got to broadband, we were minimum 100 megabytes. Now we have gigabyte internet. So now at, we're at the point of uh, diminishing returns for broadband internet. The reason why I draw this analogy right now is that we are at a pretty good clip for AI already. I think the underlying technology, if you draw, I, I may be proven wrong in the future, but if you draw the analogy to broadband internet, I would bet that we are close to 10 or 20 megabytes in terms of the evolution of the technology, which is pretty decent. Like you can do a lot of stuff with 10 or 20 megabytes. Probably you can't have the most powerful applications, but at some at, at that level, there's uh, so much potential in if you use the technology correctly for business applications, uh, there's a lot that can already be done. Now, the onus is on, as I mentioned, like on uh, people to actually be able to bring it to production, which is challenging because you need to have prompts, you need to, you need to test them correctly, you need to uh, have the right guardrails when you're rolling it out in, inside your company. We are seeing problems, at least on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm seeing problems with companies and able to, uh, in, in using the existing technology as it exists today, for solving their business problems, but it totally can solve those problems. Yeah, even if there's no more new breakthroughs that come out in AI, we can get a lot with what we have right now. Yeah, which is where sense. Venom comes in, right? To help people to build uh, enterprise use cases uh, more easily. Yeah, for instance, like yesterday, I was talking to a customer who, who basically, they have a complex business process of uh, taking these notices. So these notices come in from different governments. There's about 172 different kinds of notices. These notices are scanned in PDF files. There are like 50 page PDFs. Then there's a human that takes those 50 page PDFs, like breaks them up into individual notices. Those notices need to be responded to. So what is this? This is this task is basically taking 50 pages, breaking that into 20 different 
small documents, taking those documents and converting that to JSON format, which an LLM can do, and understanding what each notice is about and coming up with a response. That whole business process can be mapped out and using existing technology. So there's so much. I, I'm, I can go into so many examples. Yeah. So I'm going to move us on to a different section here, Akash. I'd love to get to know you a little bit more. And I think it'd be interesting to start with perhaps a story about your early days, right? Where do you come from? What kind of environment did you grow up in? And is there anything interesting or surprising about your childhood? Yeah, I grew up in Mumbai, India, and I went to an Indian school for about 15 years, almost all the way through high school. And I, would have, I was on track to go to IIT and mostly stay in India. But then for some reason, my parents just decided to maybe drop in an application for an international school in Mumbai. And that kind of changed things. Like I no longer went down the IIT path and I ended up coming to the U.S., but growing up in India was a fun experience. I think between growing up in India and moving to the U.S. to UC Berkeley, in all those cases, there's just a lot of people, both in India and UC Berkeley. And I have been used to the constant challenge was how do you stand out from so many people? And how do you build something unique and differentiated, both for your own personal brand and whatever you're doing? So that's been a recurring theme. Even today, that we have so much competition, but that's all good. So that's been a consistent theme in my childhood. There's lots of competition. How do you stand out? Got it. Do you have any anecdotes about that competition? Because I can relate. Seed and I both grew up in China and there's a lot of people there. And you're constantly being like ranked, you know, in your test scores. There's always like all these people. Any opportunity is like one opening for a thousand kids and you just have to fight for it. So, Wait, are there um, more Indians or more Chinese people? At this point? Yeah. I think India just crossed China, like oh, literally nice. a few months ago. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be its honor. It'll be its honor. <laughs> nice. Nice. If you want to tell us one potentially surprising story from your childhood, what would that be? Um, I think a surprising story that, that's probably interesting for everyone to, to listen to is just a struggle that I had on, through my childhood in breaking into the school soccer team. I used to go to training like four times a week, most consistent. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, every week, four times a week, I would go for soccer training because I really enjoyed it. And I really thought that uh, I would I'd make it. But it was just one year when I actually broke into the team and I stayed there and I was in the first team and it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. But for 11 years, it was just disappointment. And when I think back at that, it's funny because it was mostly because I just didn't have a good diet. And I, I couldn't even connect the two things. I thought training and dedication is all you need. But uh, no, it's like most of the work is done outside the field. So mm. that's a surprising story. A, a lesson that I learned on ha having like a healthy and balanced life. Did you have anyone like to tell you about that? Or did you figure it out yourself? I had to figure it out myself. It's a pretty tough message to share. I had to figure it out by myself. <laughs> yeah, random question though. Do Indian people call soccer? I thought... No, it's, it's football. It's football. Right. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's totally football. <laughs> I, <laughs> we do have a primarily American audience. So, yeah. Soccer. Doesn't mean they're correct. That's <laughs> no, <bad> football. <laughs> they also use freedom units, which make no sense. Yeah. Fahrenheit. Uh. All right. Okay. So, I'm also curious about your early careers. So, you were at McKinsey as a consultant for quite a while. I'm curious, what does that look like? That's your first job, right? After that was college. my first job. And uh, it was an incredible experience. Oh my God. The level of exposure that I had to real companies solving real problems 
at such a young age was amazing because McKinsey is often brought in by CEOs of public companies or one level below the CEO, so the executive team of public companies to solve hair on fire, high priority problems. I was in the McKinsey Silicon Valley office and I chose to just remain in the broader tech practice and in the technology practice, which also included telecom, by the way. So in the tech and telecom practice, I worked with companies of all sizes from series B companies all the way to companies that have been public for over 20 years in various different functional areas. So we did strategy projects, we did sales and marketing, we did operations, we did finance projects, and I got a pretty broad-based understanding of how technology companies are run at different sizes. And that was a very formative experience. I also really enjoyed the travel because travel is a nice perk of consulting. I don't know if I would do so much travel again today, but in my early career, that was a really fun experience. One story or one project that comes to mind, which was extremely formative, was this project we had done for a private equity company. Private equity companies often hire, and like for context, private equity companies have capital that needs to be deployed where they usually acquire companies. And in that process, they try to increase the valuation of the companies, either by cutting costs and increasing revenue and making a profit from the sale. So that's what private equity companies do. And private equity companies often hire McKinsey to help with doing diligence on McKinsey other consulting firm, doing diligence on assets that they want to acquire. One of those projects was very like formative for me. And that project was a very unknown company, by the way. Like it was uh, a company that was based in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. And this company sold legal software to to lawyers, billing and timekeeping software to lawyers all, all across the country. And the law firms that they sold to were mostly solo practitioners up to 50% law firms. So like a very long tail of lots of people. When I looked at that, that software was like completely unusable. We were doing this project in 2016 and the project, the software was built as if it was from the early 90s. But this company had incredible retention. They were also mm. able to increase prices. So they were doing, I think, 12 or 13 million ARR at 60% net margins. And wow. when I saw that, I was like, that's incredible. That is the mad, that's when I uh, found B2B software so interesting because if you're able to get onto a real problem that companies have and the, you become part of their workflow, that's a pretty indispensable place to be. And you can have a very healthy margin profile and a strong business. That's also a great example of why I feel like a consulting job is so valuable, right? You get to see the breadth of how a company's run. You also get to see the breadth of the market and know what's good when you see it. Like I, where else are you going to have the opportunity to see the financials of a business like that and realize, hey, maybe there's something here. Start a business. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Business which is increasing prices 10% year over year. No questions asked. And they've got it. So great. I, I think one thing I'm curious about is having spent about five years working at McKinsey, seeing a lot of how a lot of companies work. What's your one biggest takeaway from your time in the corporate world? What's something that you've learn that's really interesting or surprising? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway from the corporate world is that communication, maintaining good organization culture and strong communication inside the company is incredibly difficult and incredibly important. Like that is something that building your organization in a way that Everyone is motivated to work there. Everyone is like going in the right direction. And there's not that much politics and infighting is very difficult to do. 
And it's something that just tends to happen if organizations are not run well. Mm. And that's like repeatedly that ends up being the cause of companies moving slowly, losing their competitive advantage, being stuck in the past. For instance, there's some client that I worked with where the middle management clearly saw the writing on the wall because they were not winning deals consistently against their competition. And there were all sorts of reasons why like product failures, uh, not a good sales process, all sorts of like reasons why. And the middle management knew that, but they were too scared to share that information with upper management who could actually do something about it. When your organization's not empowered to do the intellectually right thing for your company, that's basically the start, the start of the end, essentially. And it gets really hard with large companies because if you have like over 20,000 employees, how do you set up the right org structure for that? For sure. I'm very curious to hear as you go down this journey, and I don't know if you have anything to share yet, right? A lot of this is, who knows, we're asking a lot of impossible questions. There's maybe some best practices. Seed and I talk often about this as well. How do you hire the right people? How do you organize them the right way? How do you make sure that sort of the magic of that startup when you're succeeding and growing yeah. doesn't disappear when you actually attain success? So a fun uh, framework that I learned at McKinsey in one of my org projects, that was the benefit of doing so many functional areas, right? So we did an org project also. And a fun framework that I still keep in mind is how do you think of spans and layers? So span is basically the span of control, how many uh, levels exist in the organization and layers is how wide each layer is. Um, that's basically a, a, a principle of how you design organizations. And the way we thought about it was, don't worry about spans. Let's think of spans later. Let's solve layers first. So layer or like the number of direct reports each manager should have, uh, so, like often corresponds with the complexity of the work that function does. For example, a customer support team, which at scale is very standardized. It has pro like standard operating procedures with SLAs to meet and stuff. Uh, that's a low complexity function that can take up to 15 direct reports. Uh, on the other extreme is someone like a product manager who has a very unstructured job and uh, the goals are not clear. And you need to, as a manager, you need to know exactly what's going on with each of your direct reports so you can help them out. Uh, there, the span of control is more like three or four people. And different functions uh, sit in between engineering is close to six to eight. And there's a whole uh, customer success is close to 10. So there's a whole range there. So once you have the right layers, then you can decide the spans. And span is usually based on how much work really exists. So you need to think of an, an objective, impartial thinking about how much work needs to be done. And this prevents this concept of empire building, where everyone wants one direct report to become a manager and then a manager of managers. This is a clean first principle way of thinking about it. So I'm curious, you mentioned, obviously, your consulting years that you realized there's a lot of value in building a SaaS company. I'm curious, what's your journey to actually take the plunge, getting into tech, and also that leads to why you choose to start a company with friends? Yeah. When I left McKinsey, I spent five years there. I, there was a good clear path to become partner. I would have made partner by now. But when I left McKinsey, I, I was the, the motivation that drove my decision to leave was if I stayed on this path, would I, and I look back five years, uh, look back in the past, would I be happy about it? And I wasn't sure if I would be. So um, I was like in, in the loss minimization function or like regret minimization function uh, line of thinking, I decided to leave and test the hypothesis of whether I want to start a company. And that's why I joined uh, Dover. Seed Stage startup as the first business hire turned first PM. And when I enjoyed that process of finding a real problem that people have, building a product that solves their needs, and then expanding the go-to-market motion to get more customers like that, 
to solve that problem for more and more people. I really enjoyed that process. And I thought that if I don't take the plunge now, I'd regret it in the future. The same regret minimization function. And it's not like a one-way journey, right? The hope is that this becomes really big and it's, 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 it solves the problem for a lot of people at scale. But if it doesn't work, that's totally fine too. I will be able to either start the next thing or work somewhere else. That's not really a problem. It's something that uh, I had an insatiable desire to try out at least once. So uh, I had to do it. It felt more like a necessity to just follow the urge. The insatiable desire. Have you always had it? And did anything crystallize that desire for you? I have that every noon. For me. <laughs> for food, no. For, for entrepreneurship. I guess the initial desire comes from uh, just wanting to do something, not being happy with just sitting still. And uh, now there's, for me right now, there's infinite things to do. Like I can, it's something that despite being way more stressed than I've been uh, at work before, I, I enjoy it so much more. Like this is, I would rather not be doing anything else. Yeah, there's just like this boundless energy of taking the next challenge, doing the next thing and seeing uh, where that takes us. That's mostly what is exciting about this journey. Awesome. I can relate to that. I, I hope to be on the other side of this one day. Just can't go to sleep, man. Can't eat, can't sleep without thinking about it. Yeah. Seed, is the next one mine? Yep. Cool. So can you tell us a little bit about YC, right? Pretty prestigious institution, pretty unique opportunity. How did you stumble across YC and what was it like getting in? Yeah. So YC is well known in Silicon Valley. My former company uh, and my co-founder's former company, we all met, is also a YC company from Summer 19. So I always knew about YC. And as a first-time founder, I like the three of us were like, we need, we just need some help because there's lots of unknowns. Also with fundraising, fundraising is a hard and daunting prospect. So we were just like, it'll be helpful to just have some like, guidance from people who've done it before. We were like, okay, let's start with YC because YC is the best, right? YC has funded the most, among the most iconic companies of our generation, like Airbnb, Stripe, Gusto, Instacart, the Rappi, like the list is so long. Right. So applying to YC was basically a no-brainer. We weren't sure when we should apply, like how much traction we should have uh, before applying. So we were trying to work on evenings and weekends and try to get something out there. But that making progress on a business, I didn't. I realized was in hindsight, I realized is requires like dedicated effort, like lots of hours, which is not surprising. But you think that you can do it on evenings and weekends, but it just doesn't happen fast enough. We decided to take the plunge and uh, just send send an application. We interviewed while we were still uh, working at uh, our former company, and get like, the, the application process was extremely first principle based. Like, what is it that? Uh, what problem are you solving, and why are you? Uh, the right person suited to solve this problem. Like YC just cared about those two things. Is this a real problem and are you able to solve this problem? And the interview process was like a 10-minute rapid-fire interview process. In those 10 minutes, we were probably asked like 15 or 18 questions and we had to answer each question in two or three sentences. So it was a pretty intense interview process, but they asked all the right questions and we're still in touch with the YC partner who interviewed us. We meet Brad once a month. And just going through the accelerator with Brad and another YC partner and then the rest of the community was uh, a great learning experience for all of us. That's awesome. People like YC focus on pretty much pre-seed companies, right? Yeah. Is there any A-round company joining YC or not really? Very few. Very few. Because ev so basically everyone gets the same standard deal, right? Which is right. 125K for 7% and 375 at your next uh, round. So right. companies that are beyond a certain stage, it just doesn't make sense Stuff for them. It's not worth it, yeah. 
And how far along were you with Vellum? Did you just have a name in a slide deck and some market research? Did you have a working prototype of any kind? How far along was the product? No, it was just an idea. It was just an idea. And I, I think the stat that YC shared about our badge, Winner 23, was that 52% of companies applied without an, applied and got in with just an idea. 77% of companies got in with no revenue and 23% had some revenue essentially. Yeah, YC is very much, I wouldn't say biased, but YC is totally okay with getting people at the very earliest stages of their journey and help with idea validation and understanding like how you can get the first customers and eventually helping with fundraising at the end of the program. Cool. Makes sense. All right. See. All right. Moving us on. We asked this question to all the founders we interview, and it's a very important question. What is success to you? If you imagine yourself, if you're writing your own story, say in five years, right? A successful Akash. What does that look like? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I don't, for me, success is not measured by the size of our company in terms of number of customers, revenue, or um, number of employees. That's fine. I think that's a byproduct. I think success mostly for me just means um, increasing the impact of what we are doing and uh, uh, me personally growing into a leader that can um, handle all sorts of business functions because uh, that's the training that I had at McKinsey early days and I really enjoyed working across disciplines and I want to be able to do that for our own company at scale. So uh, the the numbers are a byproduct of that, but I think increasing the scale uh, of our impact uh, to more more companies across geographies and by extension increasing my uh, development as a leader is something that uh, I'd be very happy about if, if that happens in the next five years. Now, is that a definition of career success specifically? Or what we try to answer here is a little bit broader in the sense of what's success in life to you. And it may well be that for you, it's very career centric, right? That's where you find most of your fulfillment and success. But I'm curious if there's a broader answer when it comes to, hey, Akash, let's say you're 90 years old, yeah. right? You're taking a break from your career and you're like, hey, feel pretty good about how my life has gone, what would that take? Oh, the answer 90 years at the age of 90 is very different, right? I think family is a very important part of it. Travel is a very important part of it. I really enjoy traveling. I was in Colombia for 10 days just last week and it was, it was an excellent experience like exploring a different country. Travel is important. Family is important. Parents are important. There may be an angle of spirituality that I explore at some point. I haven't shut that out entirely. Health and being is super important. Having good friends is important. I think life is so much more than just your career. I think for the next four or five years, it might be like dialed more towards career, just given the age that uh, I'm in right now. But I think there's so much more to be fulfilled. Yeah, makes sense. How do you, just quick follow-up, how do you prioritize between those things? Obviously, balance is hard to achieve. How do you prioritize between those very important initiatives? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good question. The way I think about balance is I there's a certain amount of number of hours that I can work every week consistently, which is the upper limit of what I can maintain for however long is needed. That range, I have my own range, but everyone should have their own range on what they're okay as a long-term maximum sustainable amount of work. And you may not hit that. It's okay. It's totally fine to not hit that. But for now, I choose to hit that. And as long as I'm within that range, I have enough time to do other things. Like I end up sleeping at least seven to eight hours a day. I go to the gym four to six times a week. I have I sprinkle in occasional travel plans and meet the folks that I need to meet on, a, on an ongoing basis. 
But it's just about deciding what you're okay with and sticking to those boundaries. So the function basically looks like you, over the course of your life, you want it all, right? You want career, you want family and personal enjoyment. And the way you do that is you find a cap of sustainable career input and you optimize within that cap. And that may shift throughout your life, right? Once when you have a family versus not have a family, when you're young versus old, that may look different, but staying within that cap and maximizing what you can within it. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's actually a pretty, pretty rational answer. I'd like to move us on to the last section of the chat where we throw all the agendas and your background and things like that out the window a little bit and just chat about whatever topic comes to mind. So Akash, I think one thing you mentioned in one of our previous chats is that you're passionate about fitness. And it sounds like there's a long backstory there. So do you want to take us through that a little bit and let's see where it goes? Yeah, there's a long backstory there. So let's start the fitness topic with food. I really enjoy food. Like I love eating so much. I I'll too, me too. All the time, the cuisines. I don't. What's eat. your favorite food, by the way? Do you do you have oh a favorite cuisine? Oh top three. Uh, top three. Top three would be if you like rapid fire. Top is Indian because I grew up eating that. So home cooked Indian food. Top thing would be probably Italian mm. because of the vast diversity of that cuisine. Third has to be some sort of Asian cuisine. It probably Chinese. Um, so nice. those are my. Nice, and. Nice. The fitness topic starts to die because uh, I've been a foodie all my life. And I just growing up, I didn't have any rational criteria on how much I should be eating, what the macros should be. So I was just like very flexible with my diet. And over time, that didn't really result in, I think I briefly mentioned this, the soccer team example, uh, because of my lack of discipline in my diet, I wasn't able to break into the soccer team. And so it just compounded several, like it just compounded into a lot of disappointment, essentially. So over time, I realized that, okay, there needs to be some balance here too. Then I got deeper into researching how, well, what is fitness? Like, how do you think of calories in versus calories out? Like, how do you think of macros? How do you think of, of building muscle? What are the different training programs you can follow? How do you do weightlifting without injuring yourself? And it was a long journey to learn all mm -hmm. this. It started maybe 15 years ago when I first got to college. And it basically, yeah, it, it, maybe, yeah, maybe 12 years ago when I first got to college, it was a mix of, uh, there was phases of starvation where I didn't, I ate 500 calories because I thought that was cool. That was not cool. Um, Starving is cool now. <laughs> yeah, that, that was cool. That was not yeah. cool. Then I got in, then uh, I did CrossFit for a bit. I did running for a bit. Yeah, it's been a very fun journey that I've gotten a lot out of and it keeps me going even today. I, I have two questions for you about fitness. One is the what and one is the why. What is fitness to you? What would you define as, hey, I'm fit enough? What are the things you can do to measure it? Yeah, I think there's, there are like measures like BMI and body fat percentage and weight and like all of that stuff, flexibility. Or social media likes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah book media likes. But yeah. honestly, none of that matters. I think what's most important is do you, do you feel energetic as you go through your day? Like when you wake up, you feel high energy. Do you uh, maintain that energy level throughout the day? Uh, and I've seen a strong correlation between lack of sleep and, at least for me, between lack of sleep and uh, lack of physical exertion. Mm -hmm. And that correlates with low energy levels uh, throughout the day. It's, yeah, it's slightly counterintuitive because presumably if you exert yourself physically, you feel less, you should feel more exhausted. But for me, that's the opposite. For me, I get just, I get energized by that. 
So right. that's uh, I try to. That's what I try to pursue. Just maintaining energy in the morning, energy in the evening, energy in the day. That that helps me a lot. Let me let me take a step back. Besides fitness, you mentioned that you enjoy all type of food, but you're vegan, right? You don't eat meat. Yeah, vegetarian. How, do, yeah. how does that? Oh, vegetarian. How does that work? You're missing out <laughs> on most of the delicious. On- the good food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I grew up vegetarian. My family, because of my family is religious, so I never ate meat at home. I know that like eating meat or like fish and chicken is really good for diet because it's like lean protein, but I never got around to eating it. So uh, a lot of my food is uh, very carb heavy and I like it. Uh, in the Italian uh, example, like pastas and pizzas are amazing, risotto is amazing. So I know that there's a lot to be that a lot have there's a lot that I haven't uh, discovered yet. I think that also really, if you're limiting the spectrum of diet to vegetarianism, really makes Indian food an exceptional choice because there are just so many foods that so much of it relies on. I guess vegetarianism isn't as exacting, but like veganism, for example, would just take off so many options from the table. But the other thing I'm curious about that you've mentioned is if fitness is primarily about energy. Why does muscle mass matter, right? Is part of this also about looking a certain way? Necessarily, I think it's just I. It, it's a, a fun process. I think there. I haven't looked into the hormones and the chemistry behind this, but I know that there's some sort of like when you push your muscles to a new level, to at the new resistance level, there's more energy that flows through the system. Like I can just mm. feel it, and that's fun. It's a game. It's a challenge, and maintaining muscle mass also as you get old, is helpful to just be healthy. I haven't looked into it, but I know that's like a generally known fact. Yeah. So why not build it earlier when you're younger and it's easier than if you deal with it in the future? Yeah, so I'm curious, as someone who's trying to lose weight recently, <laughs> again, like 30 pounds for the past few years, what, what would be your suggestion for people who want to get healthier, right? Who has a very busy lifestyle, as a, either as a founder or as someone working long hours. What are some tips to to getting to a more healthy lifestyle? Yeah. Overall, it's a long-term journey. And basically, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a small step kind of thing. And you just have to be consistent. I think consistency is the most important thing. Following diets for six weeks or workout programs for six weeks and stopping them is just not productive. That's something that I've tried and failed multiple times at. And it's more about a journey and how you change your habits. And uh, the suggestion that I would have for you and basically anyone else would be like tracking calories and calories out. So knowing what your expected calorie burns through the day looks and consuming anywhere between 250 and 500 calories less than that per day. And if you do that, maintain that consistently while eating sufficient protein, you'd be able to lose weight while maintaining your muscle mass. So we can go into a lot of depth here, but basically it's consistency and changing and just following the right habits. For example, I would never eat salads back in the day. Uh, even in my early like early career at McKinsey, I would never eat salads because uh, as a younger person, your met- metabolism is uh, better. You would just burn more calories by just existing. But that doesn't happen anymore. So now my lunch is always salads, which is a big change from like a burrito for lunch to a salad for lunch. So just like small lifestyle changes. So one thing I'm curious about is... The correlation between this pursuit or call it what you will, the willpower or discipline or passion about fitness and how that's correlated with high achieving people. So anecdotally, I don't have the numbers, but anecdotally, 
Some of the busiest people are also some of the most fit. Uh, somehow they find time in their schedule, right? So Clavio CEO, for example, avid runner, spends a lot of time working out. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, right? Very into fitness. I, I recently read up about how much time and how intense he gets into his training regime. Uh, there are just so many examples of people who probably, quote unquote, should be so busy, right? Founder CEOs that they don't have the time, but they actually also tend to be people spending the most time, the most effort and achieving the highest levels in fitness among the working professionals, right? Not professional uh, athletes or bodybuilders. So I'm curious if you think there's a correlation between the two, if there's shared traits, if you will, of someone who prioritizes and can carry through with this kind of consistent hard work and those who are successful in their careers. I honestly don't think so. I think uh, it it exists, but it's it comes down to a very personal choice. There are lots of uh, successful people who don't are not that intense about fitness. Uh, the they, richest person in the world is, is a exactly fat. without going into the <laughs> names. There's lots of people like that. So it it's a personal choice. Different people have different things that they're motivated by. For me, it's just like the energy and the determination to get better on something on a daily basis. And different people have different motivations. I don't want it's It would be a disservice to basically feel have people feel discouraged that if they don't care about fitness or health, that they can't be successful. That's just not a good like frame of mind or thinking. So I don't think there's a correlation. It just depends on personal preferences. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's certainly clear that it is not a requirement to be fit, to be successful. There are plenty of successful people who are not fit. What I'm curious about is whether there's a correlation, like if you're a fit, you're more likely to be successful because you probably have what it takes, but that's just a random I, I think it's actually, it's probably the reverse, to be honest. I think people who have more freedom in how they arrange their work have the abilities to say, I want to spend two hours working out in jujitsu every day. Dude is a billionaire. What the fuck cares, right? They have, that's uh, true. So, so, that's very you know, like, No yeah. one's going to tell Mark that uh, we need to show up to the office at 90, for example. That's interesting. So you're saying that actually it might be, the correlation may be the other way around, where yes. the primary driving factor is the fact that you're in a privileged enough position to afford the time to choose to be fit. Whereas yeah, I, if you're someone poor. who's struggling with all the hours of waking hours, right? Like you're just not going to. You know, if you're working two full-time jobs and barely scraping by, you're not going to go to the gym. Yeah, it's always somewhere I've been trained, right? Obviously, if you, it's all about prioritization, right? I think now I'm prioritizing on working out much more, go to the gym. I went to the gym right before this, right? It's it's about what you want and how to prioritize. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is it's probably easier for them to make the time if they think there's a priority, right? They, they can't make that choice. But for people, like you said, who's working three jobs, that's their life, right? They don't have time to work out in the morning. Right. I, I definitely think there's a correlation there, right? Of just having the conditions or whatever you call it, right? That being being lucky enough to have the opportunity to stay fit while maintaining a good life. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to ask you another question. So you mentioned spirituality is also important to you, right? I think that's a topic that's interesting to both Hanson and I. Why do you think you are spiritual? What does it even mean to you? Yeah, I don't think I'm spiritual as of today, for sure. But it's something that's been important to my family. So growing up, it was a big influence in my life. My parents follow this spiritual leader and they meditate for between one and two hours a day. My grandparents, when they were alive, they would uh, meditate over four to five hours a day. 
So there was just something about it. And that drew... What kind of uh, Headspace subscription did they have? No, it wasn't Headspace. <laughs> no, like externally inspired meditation. It was just yeah, um, all inside, like it was all internal. And right. they were clearly on some journey. Like when my grandfather passed away, our spiritual leader who my family follows came in his dreams of about 12 or 13 days before he passed away saying that uh, I'm going to come take you at this date, at this time. And that's basically what happened. And also right before my grandfather passed away, there was uh, he started saying these uh, phrases in Arabic over and over again. And he was saying the same thing over and over again. And we, he never spoke Arabic. And we were all very confused. Like, why? What is he saying? And when my uncle, my dad's brother, got someone to translate that, it was apparently some holy verses that priests in in the Arabic world, say to people when they're passing away. So there was something happening with him and the rest of my family. So I've just been, there's, sometimes you wonder what's the purpose of life. It's really hard to define that. Spirituality at least gives uh, meaning to some people. So I might explore that in the future. But right now there's enough things that I am interested in and I'm doing that it's it'll be in the back burner for a bit. When you say your family is spiritual in this sense, are you speaking of spiritual but not religious? Or are they also religious? Yeah, spiritual but not religious. Yeah, religion is different. Got it. Got it. And if you grew up in that household that are fairly spiritual, do you still do any rituals today that you would that makes you think you're spiritual? Or do you practice anything? No, I haven't kept up. At some point, I might pick it back up. So it's something back of mind. But I haven't kept up with it. Got it. Yeah, those long meditations sound pretty intense. I can never be patient enough to do more exactly. than like 15 minutes. Exactly. Yeah. What's the longest meditation session you've done? I don't know, 25 minutes. It was insane. I was struggling so much. My dad keeps saying that I need to do uh, meditation more frequently so I can uh, have more calm and more focus. But doing meditation also increases my stress level. So it's like weird. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always thinking about like the things I need to do. Oh, here's an email I need to draft. Exactly. Oh, here's a plan that might work. Yeah, it's hard. All right, Akash, that's a lot for us to think about. And uh, maybe I need to go do some more meditations in the future, find some more peace. So again, thank you for your time today. It's been a really fun and casual conversation. We'd love to catch up sometime. Yeah, thank you, Hanson and Seed. Uh, it was great chatting with you guys. Cool. When you were eight, your daddy said, Never take your life for granted